The second part of the hour has come. We're going to look at verses 20 to 36. We already looked at 20 to 34. John 12. In our reading today, Jesus once again is misunderstood about the proclamation that he was giving to the Jewish people of his impending death. The Jewish crowd still could not comprehend how God's Messiah, who was supposed to remain forever, will die by being lifted up on the cross. But in spite of their continual rejection of Jesus, he once again holds out his hands and offers salvation. Why? Why, being rejected over and over again, would the Son of God subject himself to that? Because of God's persistent and intense love for them. His presence, His light, would be with them a little longer. And they can become sons of light. However, this final invitation for hard-hearted Israel was also a warning. The light was there, but was soon going to be gone. And I think we need to understand that God through His Son, Jesus Christ, demonstrates incredible patience. Although, there is a limit to God's patience. Those of us who are believers in Christ have experienced His incredible patience. You and I also need to be patient with sinners as God was patient with us. And share Christ with a lost and dying world with urgency. Because God's patience does have a limit. Turn with me to John 20, John 12, verse 20 to 36. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loses his life, whoever loves his life, loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it. And I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. And this is where we left off the last time. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, 
The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtakes you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of the light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Let's pray. And Father, we pray one simple prayer. Open our hearts and minds and let the light of Christ shine in to dispel the darkness that overtakes us. In Christ's name. Amen. On a warm summer evening in London, lines of curiosity seekers formed, eager to find a seat in the auditorium in order to hear the much-anticipated debate between the well-known atheist, Robert Ingersoll, and the preacher, Dr. Joseph Parker. During the course of this debate, Ingersoll ruthlessly attacked the truthfulness of the Holy Scriptures, and in the most blasphemous of terms, denied the deity and the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. After some time, as he was... As was his manner, he paused and gazing heavenward, he threw, up, he threw out his challenge to the eternal God. I have just vilified, assailed, and profaned the name of Almighty God. I challenge you, if you exist at all, I call you to strike me dead upon this very spot. With every fixed eye upon him, he then paused and casually walked to a chair and sat down. And pulling out his stopwatch from his pocket, he added, I will give you five minutes. As each minute slowly ticked off, he confidently announced to the crowd, four minutes left, three minutes, two minutes, one minute. Then he triumphantly stood up and returning to the podium, he made his closing remark to the audience. After speaking, he motioned to the front row of the vast lecture hall where Dr. Joseph Parker was sitting. And he invited him to respond to his dramatic rebuke of God. Joseph Parker slowly took his place behind the podium. And addressing the audience, he soundly refuted each of his opponent's arguments. As he concluded, he turned to the, le- the learned atheist and graciously inquired, And did the good gentleman think he could exhaust the patience frustrate the grace and thwart the infinite mercy of God in just five minutes. As we read the Bible, we inevitably see that God is truly a patient God. You know, I love when people tell me, when they talk about the Old Testament, that God was a vengeful God, He was an angry God. They haven't read the Old Testament. There is so much grace and patience in the Old Testament that I have... I'm astounded how many times Israel failed and God graciously forgave them. And here's my challenge to you tonight as we read through this text. With patience, proclaim the gospel to all people without prejudices, without distinction. So they too can become sons and daughters of light as we are to the glory of God. And this is part two. Of the hour has come. So I need to review to catch you up to speed and also develop the end of the second point from the last time I spoke, which was about Jesus proclaiming his victory by way of the cross. And the four points of this text are Jesus pursued, which we looked at, Jesus proclaimed, which we looked at, and now we're going to look at the end of Jesus proclaimed and develop that a little more. And then we're going to look at Jesus misunderstood and Jesus departs. The first one we looked at was Jesus 
was pursued. The Greeks were noble in that they sought after Jesus. They wanted an audience with Jesus. More noble than the Jews. The Jews were looking what they could get out of Jesus. They wanted this military conqueror. The Jewish leaders wanted to see Jesus to kill him. But the Greeks wanted an audience with Jesus. They wanted to seek. They wanted to know about Jesus. And I made these three applicable points. Are you seeking Jesus for salvation if you don't know him? And we who do know him, are we seeking Jesus continually to know him deeper? And the third one was, and as Andrew and Philip brought the Greeks' request to Jesus, are we bringing those without prejudices who pursue Jesus to him by telling them the gospel? The second point was, Jesus proclaims. And there were five proclamations Jesus gave. The first one was the precise time for his glorification. The second one was the precise time for his death. Third one was the paradoxes that Jesus proclaimed. Death brings life. Serving Christ brings honor. The fourth one was his anguish. Jesus' anguish. He was troubled. The cross was on its way. And the fifth one, which we'll look at again tonight, was his victory via the cross. And the final proclamation we'll review and develop a little more fully before we look at the final two points. Now it's important to follow the movement of thought in this text which we looked at so far in these verses. 20 to 30. Which is first the arrival of Greeks who wanted to see Jesus which triggered in Jesus' mind the recognition that his appointed hour has arrived. When the Greeks came, Jesus knew in his mind and his heart His hour had come. The hour, of course, surrounds his death by way of the cross. And because he knows what faces him, Jesus is troubled. But his troubled soul does not veer him off his passion course of glorifying his Father. And that's what consumed Jesus' life, by the way. To do the will of his Father, to glorify and honor him. And then Jesus prayed, if you remember, Father, glorify your name. And his prayer is answered with an audible voice that only he truly understood. But it still served the purpose of affirming the Son of God with the crowd. And then Jesus gives us the significance of these developments in verses 31 to 33. He shows them the significance of the cross. He unpacks it by showing them the victories his death will accomplish. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And when I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Jesus' death accomplished three significant victories. And he proclaims these three. The first one was his victory over the world. Now is the judgment of the world. This is not speaking of future judgment. When believers and unbelievers are separated. It's not the great white throne judgment when unbelievers stand before Almighty God and are condemned to hell forever because they rejected their only hope found in Christ. Nor is it the Bema seat of Christ or the judgment seat of Christ where saints are judged not for salvation, for that was settled at the cross, but rather for believers are rewarded based on how faithfully they served Christ. No, this judgment is speaking about the judgment that the cross brings on the world now. The cross of Christ inaugurates judgment. 
It reveals those who are opposed to God, the Father and His Son, but it also identifies those who are truly who, are tr- who truly believe and are saved. Dr. D. A. Carson says it like this: Jesus' passion slash glorification draws people to Himself, but also constitutes judgment on the world, all of human society in rebellion against its Creator. The world thought it was passing judgment on Jesus. Not only as it perpetually debated who he was, but climatically in the cross. In reality, the cross was passing judgment on them. So the cross and his glorification brings judgment both both positively and negatively. However, for the world, it can only be negatively. Dr. David Dockery says the cross achieved salvation for those who would believe brought judgment upon the world for the refusal to believe and defeated Satan's rebellion once and for all. Secondly, Christ's death on the cross was his victory over Satan. It was not only his victory over the world and it brought judgment on the world, but it was his victory over Satan. The cross gave the final blow to dethrone Satan from his rulership in this world. And if you're a believer, he has no authority anymore over you. He lost his authority and influence, as the first gospel says in Genesis 3.15. He shall bruise your head, which prophetically means Christ will destroy Satan at the cross. And you shall bruise his heel, meaning Satan will cause Christ to suffer. Satan was finally defeated. His apparent victory at the cross was in reality his defeat. The writer of Hebrews tells us in 2.14... Through death, he, meaning Jesus, might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. So in reality, Satan used his pawns to set up the cross and crucify his rival Jesus. And he thought, hey, I finally got rid of that pest. But what the devil didn't realize was the cross he built through sinful man was his own defeat. And as I was thinking about this, I was reminded of the book of Esther. How, where Haman, influenced by Satan, was bent on annihilating the Jews. And one of those Jews' names was Mordecai, Queen Esther's uncle. Haman hated him because Mordecai refused to bow to him. So Haman built gallows in order to have Mordecai hung on it. But when, king, when the king, through Queen Esther, found out about Haman's evil devise against the Jews... He had Haman hung instead of Mordecai on the very gallows he built. Christ's death on the cross was victory over the world and over Satan. The very cross that Satan built through sinful men was his own defeat. And his victory draws all people to himself. It does not mean universal salvation as some have supposed. Because the scripture consistently speaks of only those who truly believe will have eternal life. The hour has come for Jesus to die on an old rugged cross. And will draw the Greeks, the Spanish, the Irish. The Irish? Okay. What about the Italians? Antonio, what about the Italians? Okay. <laughs> the Italians... The Afro-Americans, the Asians, the Russians, the Jews, the Arabs, and so on. 
That's who he died for. The entire ethnic world. And all types of people will and have been drawn to Christ. Christ broke down the wall of hostility between God and man, between Jew and Gentile. Revelation chapter 7 verses 9 through 10 says, After this I looked. And behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and all peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. How do we draw all men to Jesus? Preach to them Christ and Him crucified. Jesus said in John 3, verses 14 and 15, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Now Jesus was speaking of Numbers, chapter 21, when the Israelites, because of their persistent unbelief and sinned, were bitten by these snakes and had fiery fever caused by the bite. So Moses interceded to God for them, and the Lord told him to make a brass imitation of a serpent and lift it up on a pole outside the camp. Just like Jesus went outside the camp and suffered and died. And those who had enough faith to look at it would be healed. And Jesus was saying this, if I am lifted up on the cross, like that brass serpent, I will draw all people who believe in me to myself. When the crucified Christ is preached, people will be drawn to him. Paul said to the Corinthian church, For I decided to know nothing among you except who? Christ and Him crucified. R.A. Torrey, an American evangelist, he was a pastor, he was an educator, and a writer, said, Preach any Christ but a crucified Christ, and you will not draw men for long. In other words, they may come for a time to a social gospel, but they will not remain. If we lift up anything else, Men and women will be drawn to eternal hell. Only thing we could lift up is the crucified Christ. There's a story I'd like to read called Just a Kid with Cerebral Palsy by Tony Campolo. Now, I don't endorse Tony Campolo since his in the later days he's been siding with homosexuals and, um, you know, kind of coming to their defense and, you know, ignoring what really the clear teaching of the Word of God says. But I do like this, and I remember this from years ago, and this story really touched my heart, and I think it drives home the point. I was asked to be a counselor in a junior high camp. Everybody ought to be a counselor in a junior high camp just once. A junior high kid's concept of a good time is picking on people. And in this particular case, at this particular camp, there was a little boy who was suffering from cerebral palsy. His name was Billy, and they picked on him. Oh, they picked on him. As he walked across the camp with his uncoordinated body, they would line up and imitate his grotesque movements. I watched him one day as he was asking for directions. Which way is the craft shop? He stammered, his mouth contorting, and the boys mimicked him in that same awful stammer. It's over there, Billy. And then they laughed at him. I was irate. But my fury reached its highest pitch on Tuesday morning when it was Billy's cabin's turn to give devotions. 
I wondered what would happen because they had appointed Billy to be the speaker. I knew that they had just wanted to get him up there and make fun of him. As he dragged his way to the front, you could hear giggles rolling over the crowd. It took little Billy almost five minutes to say seven words. Jesus loves me and I love Jesus. When he finished, there was a dead silence. I looked over my shoulder and saw junior high school boys bawling all over the place. A revival broke out in that camp after Billy's short testimony. And as I travel all over the world, I find missionaries and preachers who say, remember me? I was converted at that junior camp. We counselors had tried everything to get those kids interested in Jesus. We even imported baseball players whose batting average had gone up since they had started praying. But God chose not to use superstars. He chose a kid with cerebral palsy to break the spirits of the haughty. He's that kind of God. I can't read that story without welling up with tears in my eyes because it always, every time I hear that story, it just touches my heart. 1 Corinthians, the first chapter, the 27 to the 29th verse, God, Paul said this to the Corinthian church. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. You see what appeared to be victory for Satan. By using junior high school kids to ridicule and harass a kid with a lifelong handicap. Turned out to be salvation for the ridiculers. When Satan meant for evil. What he meant for evil. Sovereign God used it for drawing junior high school students to himself to glorify God. And what Satan meant for the cross, to destroy Jesus, God meant it for good and brought many to salvation. When I am lifted up, Jesus said, when Satan nails me to the cross to stop me, I will draw all men to me. Through his death, Jesus would not only glorify his father, but he draws people to himself. Back to our text. The Jews were unable to understand the fact that Jesus had to die. And once again, we have, as we have seen since chapter 2 of John's Gospel, Jesus is misunderstood. He's misunderstood. Constantly. As you read through the Gospel of John, Jesus gives invitations. Jesus talks about him being the bread of life, the light of the world, and so on and so forth. And people misunderstand him. Constantly. The offering of, the offer of salvation is there. People reject. That's what through the whole book. The offer, the first 12 chapters, offering, rejection, offering, rejection. We can misunderstand Jesus by misunderstanding the scriptures. Verse 34, so the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say the son of man must be lifted up? Who is this son of man? And I believe that was met with sarcasm. You see, they just celebrated the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, Palm Sunday. And if you remember, there was a frenzy over Jesus, who they thought was this militant, conquering king. And now they're beginning to understand what Jesus is saying. A grain of wheat falling to the ground must die. 
Jesus must lose his life. Jesus will be lifted up. It's all beginning to make sense to them now. Nonsense. You don't have to die. The Messiah is a victor, not a victim. That's what they thought. So in verse 34, the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? What exactly did they have in mind? How did they come to the conclusion that the Messiah would come, defeat all God's enemies, and establish an everlasting kingdom of peace and righteousness? Well, they came to that conclusion from passages like Daniel chapter 7 and chapter 2. For example... We see in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, the prophet Daniel explaining one of his visions. He says, I saw in a night vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancients of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. And in Daniel 2.44, the prophet explaining the king's dream about world history and the future. And he says this, And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall what? Never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and break them to an end, and it shall stand forever. And there's other passages we could go through like Isaiah 9 and Ezekiel 37. So the Jews assumed that the Messiah would come and defeat his enemies and set up an everlasting kingdom based on those scriptures. And guess what? That's exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ will do at his second coming. He will defeat his enemies and remain in the eternal kingdom forever. But they failed... To look at the clear teaching in the Old Testament that the Messiah at his first coming would suffer and die for sins. Can a Christian misunderstand Jesus? Can we? Yes. Unfortunately, yes. Like the Jews of Jesus' day, they failed to see the clear teaching in Old Testament scriptures concerning the suffering Messiah. God's people, at times, fail to see the clear teaching of the Bible on certain doctrines. When I was a young believer, I was walking by the water over here, and a young man approached me and started to ask me if I had a relationship with Christ. And if I remember correctly, I was excited. I met another Christian. I was a new Christian. I was so excited. Another Christian. And he began to question if I worked manually. And I told him yes, and he asked me where, and I told him. By the way, I still have the same job to this day. That was almost 40 years ago. So I told him. And he began to tell me that as a Christian, I should not be working by manual labor. (laughs) And I think he quoted the scripture where Jesus said in John 6.29, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. And he used this as a basis for his argument of why we shouldn't be working. We should just go out being preached. Preaching the gospel. Jesus, of course, was not saying that just believe in him and you don't have to work as if the food and clothing and shelter would just appear. What Jesus was saying in the context of that passage was the only work acceptable to God for salvation was to believe in his son whom he sent. It had nothing to do with 
not working to put food on the table, but trusting in God's Son for eternal life. And as a young believer, I didn't know how to answer I mean, I knew the scriptures somewhat. I was, I was young. I was maybe a year or two in the Lord. So I didn't know how to answer him. But the person I was with did. And said to him, doesn't the Bible say, he who doesn't work doesn't eat? <laughs> well, he didn't know what to say. And the conversation, if I remember correctly, came quickly to an end. When Jesus... After he was resurrected, was on the road to Emmaus, walking with his two disciples, who did not recognize him. He had to rebuke them for failing to understand and believe the Old Testament that taught Jesus had to suffer first and then enter his glory. And it's important to notice that the hard-hearted Jews were expecting the glorious Messiah, but failed to understand that he first had to suffer. But it's also important to notice that his own disciples also failed. Excuse me, failed to understand it. What's the difference then? The difference is this. True disciples of Christ will eventually understand and believe. It's one thing for a Christian to genuinely not understand something, and then another Christian shows them from Scripture to clear up the confusion, and that Christian rejoices, now he understands the truth. But please listen carefully. It's another thing... And also dangerous when a Christian who doesn't understand something and is approached by a believer who will show him or her the correct meaning of a particular passage of scripture and that person refuses to accept the correct meaning because, well, that's the way we always believed it. Or, sorry, that's the way I learned it in Sunday school. Or worse yet, sorry, I don't feel that way. That's dangerous and hard-hearted before the Lord. Let the scriptures convince you of the truth. Back in our text. Even though the Jews were unable to accept the truth that the Messiah had to die first and rejected him. Jesus in his persistent love for them extends one final invitation to receive him as Lord and Savior. See Jesus corrects them or corrects their misunderstanding with their final invitation. Excuse me one second. And we're up to verses 35 and verses 36. So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtakes you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of the light. Now Jesus doesn't really seem to give the crowd a direct answer to their question. But he really has answered their question all along, hasn't he? Hasn't he been telling them throughout his ministry... Who he was. But they rejected it. And instead of getting into a theological argument about the Messiah's role. Jesus gives them a final invitation to believe in him. This invitation also incurs a warning. However, even in this warning it shows the incredible patience, compassion, mercy and grace of our Lord. For three years he preached to them, right? And then he preached to them publicly and they rejected his claims of who he was And what he came to do. And yet. He holds out his hands again for salvation. And yet. He holds out his hands again for salvation. However. God's patience. Was running out. A little while longer Israel. The light is among you. Just a little while longer. Jesus used the term a little while. Repeatedly. To show the brevity of his remaining time on earth. And I believe this term also exhibits a sense of urgency. 
And at the point, at that point, there was a small window of opportunity for the crowd to hear the gospel from Jesus himself. Soon, he was going to be gone. He warned the unbelieving Jews in John 17. He warned his own disciples in John 13 and John 16. And that his time on earth was short. And soon the opportunity to respond to the gospel would be gone. Darkness was upon him. It was closing in on them. And once again, they they kept rejecting the truth. And darkness was closing in on, on them because the light was going to be gone. Once I was coming home from upstate New York... And it was, it was pretty cloudy. The weatherman predicted a snowstorm for our area. And as we were driving, you could see in the distance, the clouds were very even. And I know what that meant. And I, because the clouds over us were kind of ripply. But as you look in the distance, they were very even. And I knew that in approximately a half hour, it would start snowing. I knew that our window of opportunity to get home before it started to snow was short, very short. And we were around the Albany area. We were driving home from the Amsterdam area. We reached about Albany. And we knew it was going to snow, but we left late. We were just taking it easy. And... But it's sure enough, in a half hour, it started to snow. That's why they call me meteorologist John Verdi. They don't say that for nothing. <laughs> we were on the New York State Thruway, and we were moving very slow. And cars began to get stuck because the snow was piling up very quickly. And it took us a long time to get home. I remember, it was, it was scary. Because it was, it was just snowing so heavy. Cars were getting stuck all over the place. At one point, we were just at a dead standstill. We had to get out of the car, help somebody. It was a mess. It was a mess. It was very, very, for me, it was very claustrophobic. Just being in that car and the snow coming down. And... So it took us a long time to get home. It overtook us. We weren't prepared. If we heeded the weatherman's report and left earlier, we would have avoided the storm and made it home without any problems. And Jesus was telling the Jews, a darkness is fast approaching. And the light you have, which is me, is not going to be here much longer. And when it comes, it's going to overtake you. It will master you. Jesus obviously didn't want his hearers to be overtaken by darkness. But urge them to walk in the light which is he, which he is and gives. What does he mean, light and darkness? There are two terms that are not new in John's gospel. The very beginning of John's gospel, in the first chapter, the fourth to the fifth verse, it says, John says, In him was life, and the life was was the light of men. The light shines in darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And John, John 8, 12. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 9, 4 and 5. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. But what does the Bible mean when it speaks of light and darkness? Well, in our context tonight, it certainly does. It's not speaking of physical Light and darkness. However, we can see the similarities between physical and spiritual light and darkness. But in this setting, Jesus is speaking of the spiritual light versus spiritual darkness. Let me describe spiritual darkness first. When sin entered the world, so did spiritual darkness. The unregenerate world, the the unregenerate people 
has intellectual and moral darkness. Intellectual darkness is spiritual ignorance. That is, the inability to see and to know the truth of God's word. Moral darkness is immorality. That is, the inability to see and to do what's right. The unbelieving world cannot and will not understand the truth of God's word, nor can they walk in the truth of God's word. That's spiritual darkness. Light, on the other hand, illuminates the believer's mind. And now they're not only able to understand and discern the truth, but to live it. Christ, our light, calls every believer out of darkness into light. And the Apostle Peter, writing to suffering Christians, throughout Asia Minor, says in 1 Peter verses 2-9, he says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. It's no wonder Jesus urged his audience to walk in the present light. It's marvelous. The Greek word for marvelous also means it's wonderful. It's wonderful to walk in his light. If you're a Christian, you have to agree with that. You know, yeah, we fail at times. And yeah, we, have, we go through hard times of suffering and whatever, tribulations and persecution. But it's marvelous. It's wonderful. However, Jesus' plea was a definite warning. One commentator says it like this. The warning, walk while you have the light, so that the darkness may not overtake you, operates on at least two levels, two different levels. To the Jewish people in Jerusalem to whom Jesus spoke, the warning was a reminder that there was only a little time left for them to accept him as their Messiah. To those later individuals to whom the fourth gospel was written, and to every person since, the words of Jesus are also a warning. There is a finite, limited time in which each individual has opportunity to respond to the light of the world, that is Jesus. After that comes darkness. One's response to the light decisively determines one's judgment for eternity. It's really black and white, isn't it? To walk in light is to trust wholeheartedly in Christ and become a follower of Him. One who is now controlled by the Spirit. To walk in darkness is to reject Christ and therefore continue in sin and to stumble through life only to end up in eternal darkness without grace, without mercy of God, but to endure His wrath forever. Black and white. We are all born in darkness called original sin. There is no one who was born in the light. I love when people tell me, I was born a Christian. No, you aren't. You were never born a Christian. There was a point in time that God saved you. No one was born a Christian. Matter of fact, the Bible says the opposite. We're born in sin. And until we come to Christ for light, we grope about in darkness, stumbling through life. I liken it to waking up in the middle of the night and getting out of bed to get a drink of water. But because it's dark, and, and, and we've all experienced this, you can't see where you're going, and all of a sudden, crack, you stub your foot or your toe on a piece of furniture. You don't feel the pain the first two seconds, and then there's this excruciating pain. <laughs> Nothing good happens walking in the dark. <laughs> Nothing. When I was a child, I would have these recurring dreams in my and the recurring dream was me walking into my parents' bedroom at night. And they were not there in the in that room in that dream. 
And when I walked in the room, there was darkness that was so black that it was the most frightening thing that I, I can recall to this day. I also remember in that dream that I sensed some hideous presence in that thick black darkness. And when I woke up, I was afraid. But as soon as I heard my father get up for work, it began to get light, the fear subsided, and all was well. At least I, I thought. Even though the dream was over, I was still in pitch blackness. The worst kind, life without Christ. I was in darkness and I didn't even notice it. What that dream meant as an unbeliever, I, I don't know. I don't put much stock in dreams. But I do know when the light of Christ came in my life, it dispelled all the darkness. Jesus gave the solution and the invitation that day to the Jews and throughout the centuries and to us today. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of the light. What does that mean to us today since we don't have the physical Jesus with us? It means the light of the glorious gospel. It means the conviction of the Holy Spirit. In other words, while we have the word of God and while we have the Holy Spirit convicting us of its truth, believe and obey it. And by doing so, Jesus said, we will become sons and daughters of light. We will become a disciple who reflects the life of Christ. Paul told the Thessalonians, believe the, I'm sorry, he told the Thessalonian believers, that's a tongue twister for me. In 1 Thessalonians 5.5, 5, he says, For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night, nor of the darkness. See, when you and I believed, we became and remained sons and daughters of light. And as children of light, we are now light bearers. We are now a city on a hill which cannot be hidden. We don't hide our light, but we let our light shine brightly so all can see. One commentator says, A godly life gives convincing testimony of the saving power of God that brings Him glory. In other words, when we live a godly life, our light is shining ever so brightly and people will see a convincing testimony of a changed life, whether they admit it or not. I read this illustration by an unknown author. And I thought it would drive home the point that we are the light of Christ in the dark world. And he says this. If you hold phosphorus under a bright light, then turn out the lights. The phosphorus will glow in the dark. This is a process where energy is absorbed by a substance and is slowly released in the form of light. As Christians, we are Christ's representatives in a world filled with dishonesty, despair, and selfishness. We are called to be a light in darkness. How is this possible when we have a sin nature and are, full, and are fully capable of all the selfish deeds taking place in the world around us? We charge ourselves with the word of God and reflect Christ's characteristics. When we are under Christ's light, if we have the opportunity for revenge, we will choose to forgive. When we could cheat, we will deal honestly. When we could be selfish, we will be happy to serve. And when we are stressed, we will learn to relax and trust in God. When Christians energize themselves with God's promises and mandates, they are, as great, they are a graceful light in a dark world. But we must remember, if we don't constantly expose ourselves to God's word, our Christ-like light will soon cease and we will become just as dark as the world around us. Then we have failed to be gracious Christians that glow in the dark. And I think that accurately says how we 
as children of the light act in the dark world. Jesus said in Matthew 5.16, Let your light shine so before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. He is the light and you and I are the light bearers. A preacher was preaching in a church one day and the lights went out and so he didn't know what to do so he stopped preaching. Well, someone in the back of the church yelled out, Keep preaching. We can see Jesus in the dark. Praise God. And here's the good news. If all the lights went out in this building and it was pitch black, Brian and I can continue to preach because you could still see Jesus in the dark. The negative side to all this is if I fail to embrace Christ's light by refusing to trust in Him, I remain a victim of darkness. After Jesus extends this invitation to the crowd, the Bible says in the second half of verse 36 that he departed and hid himself from them. And this is a sad time for the nation of Israel. The Messiah, who they were waiting for, it's a long time, finally arrives, but because they misunderstood the kind of Messiah he was to be, they reject him. So now Jesus departs and hides from them. I think that's one of the saddest verses in the Bible. Because it still happens today. And I'm not going to spend much time on this because the next time I preach we will look at the summary of John's account of Jesus' public ministry in the remaining verses of John 12. And where John gives scriptural references on why there was such a hard-hearted unbelief on the nation of Israel. Jesus departs. Our fourth and final point, which will be on this couple of minutes. God's patience does have an end, and there is a point where the Holy Spirit departs. Why did Jesus depart and hide from them? And I believe it was from this one thing, from not just unbelief, persistent unbelief. Some believe this was the end, the tragic end of Jesus' public ministry. But some disagree because when we get to verse 44, the next time I speak, there seems to be yet another invitation. However, some think... And I agree with this. John was just giving a summary of Jesus' public ministry. That's what I believe was happening. But in any case, Jesus hiding himself from them was judgment because of unbelief. And I do believe it marked the end of Jesus' public ministry. Because as you read from 13 on, he now devotes his life to his disciples. And it's really about Passion Week and devoting his life to his disciples. Dr. D.A. Carson says, by his withdrawal, his self-conscious hiding from the people, he is acting out to the judicial warning he has just pronounced. And I believe with all my heart that when the rejecters of Christ stand before the judgment seat of God, every man, every woman will be speechless and will never be able to point the finger at God and say, you never gave me the opportunity to repent and believe in Jesus. They will see the sinless Son of God with His hands that still have the nail prints and realize He did all He could to show them the way to eternal life. However, now instead of being the tender Savior, He can only be their judge. Let's make a few concluding remarks with some additional application. If you're a Christian, you are not just a light. You're not just a light. You're a bright light in a dark world. Do you ever, were you ever in a dark room and you just lit a candle? What does it do? It dispels the darkness. 
Darkness can never overtake light, but light can overtake darkness. The only way darkness can overtake light is if the light goes out. When we, as Christians, walk in a room filled with unbelievers, it's dark in there. When we walk in there, there's light. And most don't like that light. John 3.19 says, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people love the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their works were evil. Every morning, when I get up in the dark and turn on the light... I have to squint. Do you ever do that? You know, you, you squint because my eyes hurt from the light. Well, people squint when we walk into a room because they, it hurts their eyes. Nonetheless, we are His light. So let's go into all the world with the light of Christ and proclaim Him without any prejudices or distinctions. Priest, preach Christ accurately. Who He is and what He has done. So we give our hearers no reason to misunderstand the message of grace. Let's sum up today's message. Christ's death on the cross brought victory over the world and the Satan. His victory at the cross draws all kinds of sinners to himself. And when you and I preach the crucified Christ, many will come to him. But some will ignorantly or willfully misunderstand the gospel. But we are to continue to be light to them. If they're persistent and willful, In unbelief, we move on. We wipe the dust off our feet and move on. Only God knows the point where the Holy Spirit is withdrawn from convicting them. The hour has come, sonship. Let us not fail to preach Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, help us to be light in this dark world we live in. Help us to simply and patiently preach Christ and Him crucified so there will be more and more sons and daughters of light added to your glorious kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.